Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Dr. Ryan Maves. I'm a professor of medicine and anesthesiology at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Welcome to the CHEST COVID-19 webinar series. Uh, it is my distinct pleasure to be here today uh, discussing updates in vaccines for SARS-CoV-2, uh, both strategies for the clinical management of patients, optimizing vaccines for different populations, and also strategies to address the ongoing challenges we have in clinical practice with vaccine hesitancy. I'm joined today by Dr. Susan Klein, who's Professor of Medicine and uh, Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Minnesota, and Dr. Joe Cabaza, who is Pulmonary and Critical Care at the Cleveland Clinic. We're going to lead off with Dr. Klein, followed by Dr. Cabaza, and then we'll come together for a longer discussion. We'll be able to address both audience questions, the questions you've submitted in advance, and to see where the conversation takes us. So first, I'd like to introduce once again, Dr. Klein. Thank you, Dr. Maves. So I'm just going to share my screen now. So today I'm going to be talking with you about um, booster doses for the COVID vaccine primarily. And, you know, why are we talking about the booster doses now? I think because we're really in a somewhat unexpected position. We're in this perfect storm that we're seeing waning immunity from vaccines from people who were vaccinated um, early in 2021. And now we're having this Delta variant surge, which is occurring in the second half of this year in our country. And these two things combined are leading to decreased vaccine efficacy. And so I think we are now learning from the, the studies that are coming out is that we're seeing more breakthrough infections and uh, we know that antibody levels fall over time. And so I just wanted to review some of the current data that we have, which I think helps guide us in making decisions about booster doses. So this was one of the first reports that came out, um, and this was published in the MMWR in August of this year, talking about the effectiveness of the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccine in nursing home residents, and comparing the time periods before and after the widespread circulation of the Delta variant. And this data showed that early on, um, the vaccines in the real world setting looked quite efficacious, even in this elderly nursing home resident population. Two doses of the mRNA vaccines were 74% effective against infection. And that was in the, in the time period March through May. So this is recently after vaccination. But when you look forward to the time period June through July, when the Delta variant uh, was circulating, and after time had elapsed since the original vaccination, the efficacy had dropped to 53%, so uh, dropped about 20% during this time period. And then there was another report that came out in the Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report in August, looking at new COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations among adults by vaccination status 
in New York State. And this looked at the time period May through July of 2021. And what they saw is that um, the age-adjusted vaccine effectiveness against infection declined during this period by um, about a little over 10%, from 91.7 to 79.8%. But if you look at the effectiveness of the vaccinations against hospitalization, it was still relatively stable and quite good from 91.9 uh, to 95.3%. And then uh, the same month, was published this report of the effectiveness of the COVID-19 vaccines in preventing SARS-CoV-2 infection among frontline workers before and during uh, the Delta variant predominance. And this was in eight US locations from December, 2020, when uh, healthcare workers first started getting vaccinated to August, 2021. And here again, they saw that overall vaccine effectiveness fell during that time period. Initially, it was 91% before predominance of the SARS-CoV-2 Delta variant. But if you look at the period where Delta was predominant, vaccine efficacy fell to 66%. And so I think you know, that was concerning, of course, that our frontline workers now a uh, little over eight months after their initial vaccinations began, we're already having significant decrease in the effectiveness of the vaccines. And this is a study that was reported, um, oops, sorry, go back one, more recently, looking at veterans. And this is looking at protection of infection, and uh, this slide in particular is showing survival in U.S. veterans based on their vaccination status. And uh, these graphs are a little busy here, but let's just look at uh, this panel D, and I'll go through these lines. So this is looking at survival in weeks of follow-up and uh, you can see the, the group that has the lowest survival is that light blue line, which is unvaccinated and PCR positive. So if you haven't been vaccinated and you're infected uh, with SARS, you have the worst survival. And then uh, the black line is unvaccinated PCR negative. And then um, the next lineup is fully vaccinated and PCR positive. And then the best survival overall over a 26 period of time, 26 week period of time is the group of veterans that are fully vaccinated and PCR negative. So, you know, I think this, this graph shows two things. One is that survival over time is falling but also that the group that was um, vaccinated has better survival. And this is a, a graph just showing how the antibody levels decline over a six month period of time. And uh, you can see here, this is like a month after the initial vaccination, antibody levels are quite high. 
But I just want to point out this graph up here, A, and you can see that the levels of antibodies vary based on the particular strains that you're looking at. And uh, the lowest antibody levels in this graph are actually in this red strain here, which is the beta variant. So this does show that antibody levels that can neutralize the virus vary against the different strain types. And I think that's significant now that, you know, we're hearing about this new Omicron variant and we're not sure yet um, what those virus neutralizing antibodies will be from the prior vaccinations against the Omicron variant. And so, you know, what is the data to support uh, the booster dose? Oops, excuse me. So, you know, most of the data we have is based on increasing titers and virus neutralizing titers. And we know that after boosting, those titers go up. And yet, do we know what the real world data shows us? And I would say that in this country, we really don't have that real world data yet. But I think Israel has um, reported some very interesting data. So in Israel, they started seeing breakthrough infections early on this summer. And they compared case rates in the elderly in the summer of 2021 compared to the winter and spring, which was shortly after the initial vaccination series. And they saw these breakthrough infections were rising in the 60 and over group, and that some of these patients were getting seriously ill and were being hospitalized. And so they decided early on in Israel to start offering boosters to those 60 and over. And pretty quickly, they started seeing that cases were falling and they've now published um, some of this data in the New England Journal of Medicine. And so um, this table is showing some of that data of giving the booster dose of, against COVID-19 in Israel and what the difference are in outcomes. So if you look at this non-booster group and you compare it to the booster group, the non-booster group, and this is over 5 million patients had 4,439 breakthrough infections and 294 cases of severe illness. But if you look at the group that was boosted, they had a fraction of the number of cases. They had 934 cases per 10 million people. So a larger group and significantly fewer um, breakthrough infections. And then if you look at the group that got boosters and had severe illness, there were only 29 cases of severe illness. And so that was a 10th of the non-booster group and you're dealing with a larger denominator. So based on this Israeli data, it looked like, you know, the booster dose really was effective at preventing breakthrough infections and severe illness compared to a non-boosted group. And um, this slide is just showing some of the antibody um, data looking at neutralizing antibodies in patients who had had two doses of the Pfizer vaccine and comparing that to just before the third dose and after the third dose. 
And on the top table here, you can see in green, this is the, um, this, the typical strain that we had. And then the orange is the beta variant. And so you can see that these antibody levels fell from a month, oops, sorry, I didn't mean to do that, month after the second dose until just before the third dose. And then after giving the third dose, she had a nice boost in antibody levels, not just uh, against the original SARS-CoV-2 strain, but also against the beta variant. And I think this is uh, important too, because I think this gives us some evidence that the existing vaccines um, give us some protective immunity, even against these newer variant strains. And in the, um, the bottom picture here, uh, it shows the uh, neutralization of wild type virus in the Delta variant. And you can see that the levels here of the wild type compared to the Delta are actually quite similar and that they are boosted to both of the strains after the booster dose. Now, this is the data that was um, done looking to, at this issue of mix and match boosters. And that's something that I think people are quite interested in. And, and this was a study where they took people who had had primary vaccination with the three different vaccines in this country, the Pfizer, the Moderna, and the Johnson & Johnson. And then they boosted these people um, with a variety of booster doses. So some people in, in each of the categories got the Pfizer booster or the Moderna booster or the Johnson & Johnson booster. And basically what they saw is that um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccinated people started with lower um, antibody titers across the board. And if they were boosted with Johnson & Johnson, they did get a boost, but um, not as high as if they got a boost with one of the mRNA vaccines. So both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine boosters after the initial J&J &J gave a stronger antibody response. And if you compare um, with the mRNA vaccines boosting with Moderna versus um, boosting with Pfizer, the Moderna booster actually got the, the strongest antibody response overall and was a little stronger than the Pfizer. And um, this table is just looking at this issue of immunocompromised um, patients. And this is in particular looking at solid organ transplant recipients who had two doses, comparing those to um, recipients who had a third dose. And you can see that overall, uh, the number that are seropositive after two doses is really not that good. Um, and after the third dose, you've significantly boosted. And so now you're over 50% of your recipients who have um, good, what we hope are protective antibody levels. And these are just the references that were used for that. 
And so, you know, based on, on those studies, the FDA came out early on in August and said that they authorized an additional third vaccine dose in persons who have undergone solid organ transplant or are diagnosed with conditions that are considered to have an equivalent level of immunocompromise. And so they went on further to say that it, it um, really should be a three-dose primary series. And um, probably I'll just stop with the slides here, Dr. Maves, because I think I'm over my initial time and then we could open it up for questions. Not over at all. Thank you very much, Dr. Klein. That was wonderful. Uh, next, we're gonna turn it over to Dr. Cabaza, uh, who will discuss some issues regarding vaccine hesitancy at the bedside for a practicing pulmonary critical care physician. Dr. Cabaza. Yeah, so thanks, Dr. May. Thank Dr. Klein for those uh, that great, helpful information. Uh, it's great to have the uh, um, a lot of infection disease minds um, uh, helping us because a lot of that was way above my head before uh, this pandemic and kind of getting comfortable with that kind of um, research and data is, uh, has taken a little bit of time with everything else uh, going on. But, you know, I, I think in pulmonary and critical care, we have a very unique uh, position uh, in healthcare right now, especially within this pandemic, is that you know, we span both worlds. You know, we come across patients in the outpatient setting in the office. We, we get to know them, have relationships with them for years. And we also are, are kind of eyewitnesses about what's going on in the intensive care unit, sometimes taking care of these same patients that we've known for years in the ICU. And, and I, I, I think pulling in our experiences from the, what we see in the hospital and bringing it to patients we come across in the office um, I think gives us a little bit of an advantage in trying to have some of those kind of uh, pushes for the vaccine hesitant. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's talked about as grassroots where it might be easier to go one by one with the patients uh, and trying to reach people directly with all the misinformation and noise um, uh, going out there. And I was really, you know, I think in February, March, April, you know, I really was, I really felt, I mean, maybe uh, arrogantly that I'd be able to convince every patient I met uh, to get vaccinated. And it took me a couple of weeks till I realized that was not uh, really feasible. Uh, and also how challenging it was emotionally where people I've known for years that I thought I knew or, or that trusted me um, certainly uh, suddenly felt they knew more than me about complicated uh, aspects of medicine. Uh, so that was a bit humbling and kind of really pushed me back a little bit where I went through a phase where I wasn't really asking any patient anymore. I didn't want to experience that uh, potential confrontation or the backlash or even the rejection uh, of, of talking to them and having them tell me, well, no, I'm still not, I'm still not going to. And, and, it, but it was exciting, you know, February, March, April, so many people were getting vaccinated. So many less people were dying and less people in the hospital. And then we go into June and July and, and I mean, the cases were, uh, were so low and, um, I didn't really talk about vaccines much after all. I mean, I kind of thought we'd seen the worst of it. Um, and then and then Delta came where kind of that push of just cases in the community that that filtered through the hospitals and that we're still, you know, we thought we we're going down a little bit. And now that bump back up has really, uh, I think, brought it very important again to kind of not only talk about vaccines to the unvaccinated, which I, of course, is the priority, but but now to make sure uh, that our vaccine people are getting boosted, because there are a lot of patients who you know, got their two shots, but 
either are not aware or confused or perhaps not convinced that they need to keep up with it. You know, they, they got their two shots and they feel like that's it. And that might be enough for a lot of people. But I think the big theme is that, especially with a lot of questions that patients have, is just we don't know. Um, you know, and I know, uh, you know natural immunity questions certainly do come up and we just don't know. Natural immunity is very good probably for a bunch of people, but how do we know which person it's good for and for how long and against which strain? Um, you know, and so, you know, the whole really theme point is that I, what we tell everyone is uh, more immunity is better than less. So whatever you have now, if you get more of it, you're going to be better equipped for whatever might be around the corner um, and to get as much immunity as you can uh, the, the easy way. Um, I think recently, as, as at least at our institution, when uh, we're about to implement a, a mandate, um, you know, I've had many uh, coworkers come up to me with questions about vaccine. And you kind of learn, I've really learned so many people I work with, we're not really anti-vaccination, but more really just either scared of side effects or on the fence or kind of put it off so long that they're almost embarrassed to uh, ask questions about it, even of their uh, uh, physicians and even coworkers. And there are people that I've known for years that I wish they had uh, came up to speak to me sooner. And really the vast majority of my experience have after just an honest face-to-face conversation, answering their questions and reassurances, um, you know, have gone on to get vaccinated. And really one of those that feels like really a, just a huge victory anytime uh, somebody chooses as a result of the uh, discussion. But, you know, the office has certainly been a challenging, uh, a challenging spot because uh, you have patients who are afraid of being judged also. Some are ready to co- have a confrontation um, uh, when it comes up. And then there's the a subset who are certainly on the fence that are just a little scared and might need a little bit of a, uh, of a nudge. And, and I really, what I now do, I oftentimes just in general, I will just talk about my experience in the ICU, you know, in the office, I'll, I'll just make a line about how, you know, last week was a nightmare in the ICU. You know, we were just seeing some terrible heartbreaking stuff, really just, you know, draw about my experiences. This isn't a TV show. This isn't, know, some other state or other country sharing their experiences. This is an ICU doctor that they happen to be sitting across in the, their, the outpatient visit from uh, just casually talking about how bad things are around the corner uh, from them. And that oftentimes really, I mean, it puts kind of people at ease. They're, they're, I, I did not bring up vaccine. I didn't ask them about vaccine. I'm just talking about really tough stuff that's going on around us. They'll sometimes ask about vaccination uh, of those patients. I generally will add that it's sad how preventable things are now. Um, And and really, I I just draw on what I'm seeing uh, in the ICU. And I think that gives us uh, pulmonologists who practice ICU or even inpatient medicine, I think a a very strong advantage uh, in that we see everything and we span all aspects from you know, the, the mild outpatient illness to, to those who are uh, severe ARDS on the ventilator and, and who don't make it. So I, you know, I, I do see it in their eyes that trust, you know, that, that they just say, wow, this is somebody who's seeing everything and not, not trying to scare me, not telling me any story. They're just, I don't know any, I mean, I don't know any state statistics. I don't know national statistics. I barely even know my county. I just know what's going on in the ICUs that uh, that I work in. And I think that helps them uh, a bit also just really drawn about just really what I see on the ground, um, on the ground level. Um, and I make it very non-judgmental uh, as well. I'll ask them if really, and I don't ask them, are you going to get vaccinated? Did you get vaccinated? That I found 
people find it, they get a little defensive uh, with that question. Some really jump down your throat when you ask it that way. And I just ask simply, do you have any questions about the vaccine? Um, and that, so some people say no right away. It doesn't really give them an opportunity to even have an exchange about it. If they say no, then I'm kind of done there. I don't really add much. And by me not adding much, it almost puts them uh, at ease a little bit. You know, they, they, you could see them kind of loosen up uh, and relax a little bit. And, but what that does, it gives me an opportunity when I see them next in a few months to then reintroduce it because they know I'm not judgmental. I'm not pushy. Granted, I think I wish I could give it immediately to everyone. Uh, but I think that pushing approach also may, that approach may push some people uh, uh, away. And I think realizing this is a really a, a long road and getting to the people who don't have questions or who are not hesitant uh, or just really opposed to it, you know, if, if you're not telling them what to do or what they should do and just leaving it at, do you have any questions? I find that kind of softens them up for the next time. Um, you know, I see them in the office where they're more willing to have an engage, in, engage because they know there's no judgment from me. You know, they know that it's going to be just an honest discussion. I tell everyone how I treat my own family members is the advice I give um, uh, to patients. And, and there's certainly all sorts of different lines I use when uh, uh, when talking to patients. I'm really trying to pull onto the fact that, you know, we would not do anything that we think would be harmful or risky to ourselves, especially to our family members uh, and, and loved ones. And um, but but I think trying to Try, I always try to plan on that next visit. You know, I think if they're not there with me mentally uh, to make that, um, uh, to either even ask questions they have or, or share their thoughts, knowing that I'm not pushing and not judging does open them up uh, for, for future visits where I, I think the odds of having a, a healthy exchange um, uh, become better. And also, I think a lot of, most of the hospitals now are offering vaccines to inpatients. Um, and so when I'm taking care of any non, uh, non-COVID uh, patient in the hospital who's not vaccinated, you know, I, I do ask them about uh, vaccine while they're in their bed, ask them if they have any questions, you know, where they're there face-to-face and they're probably, they're scared in the hospital about whatever they're in there with. Uh, I found that as an opportunity to be able to talk to them about ways to prevent them from being in the hospital for COVID in the future. Um, and I, I'd say my, I wish I kept statistics, but I, I think my, my hospital uh, acceptance to initial vaccine rate uh, continues to be pretty high, a lot higher than I really imagined. And I think it's the combination of them being in a, uh, a compromised position. They're in the hospital for something else. Um, and to kind of talk about um, uh, you know, pro- easy preventive ways to keep them out of it and a chance to answer questions uh, they may have. I think early on for non COVID patients in the hospital. I, I was not having that dialogue, at least at the, uh, the very beginning. And also we did not have vaccines at, at least at the very beginning uh, uh, earlier in the winter. Uh, but as that's evolved, trying to catch people wherever they're at in the hospital, I think is a good place to handle some of those inpatients who are um, vaccine hesitant. And it's that aspect was a lot easier than I'd imagined. And I think we just have an advantage because they are in the hospital, because they're scared of of whatever non-COVID issue had them there. Um, so it, it's really been interesting kind of navigating you know, the outpatient, the inpatient world. I think pulling our experiences from both uh, can really help us have kind of higher rates of uh, having patients choose to, to get that immunity the easy way and to keep them from ever um, 
you know, seeing me in the ICU and to just kind of keeping it um, uh, in, in the office. You know, I, I think in the first year before vaccines, I lost six outpatients to COVID, uh, two of whom I was taking care of in the ICU who I'd known uh, for years. And, and since vaccines, you know, almost a year now, I've only lost one patient. Um, and she was vaccinated, but had a lot of uh, uh, other issues. But it's, you know, so I just draw on to those real experiences in the office and spanning the hospital. And I, so I really think those of us who span those worlds of outpatient and inpatient um, really have, I think, a responsibility and also, I think, a strong advantage uh, in this quest to try to get more people um, immunity to COVID. Uh, that is a great summary. Thank you so much, Dr. Kabaz. And I think your, your point about the, the uniqueness of pulmonary critical care practice and the way we interact with patients. I, of course, I'm an intensivist, not a pulmonologist. Um, but we, uh, you know, in my outpatient practice is largely transplant ID. Dr. Klein, of course, is a, also an infectious disease physician. But between the three of us, I think, you know, pulmonary, in pulmonary medicine, almost every patient in your practice and in all of our practices are going to be high risk virtually by definition. There may be occasional, occasional isolated exceptions, but, um, but they are infrequent, right? Uh, very, you know, perhaps a, perhaps a person with very mild sleep apnea in the absence of, in the absence of a significant uh, challenge with obesity, for example. But by and large, uh, by and large, everyone we contend with in our practices, everyone we work with and develop relationships with are going to be folks who will need potentially a three-dose primary series and very frequently will be recommended a booster. Now, certainly CDC is now recommending boosters for all adults, but, um, but it is, uh, you know, there's a certain degree of prioritization. I think you were alluding to there, Dr. Kabaz, about, you know, there's everyone should get a booster, but who do we, who do we start working with first? And actually one question, this has been coming up in the chat, and if I may, I'm going to first direct this to Dr. Klein, but that we can all talk about it, is a little more on the mix and match practice. Um, uh, Dr. Klein, you showed that study from NIAD by uh, John Beigel and colleagues about the relative impacts of mix and match boosting. In your own practice, what do you think about that? What is What is your practice been? Well, you know, in uh, the outpatient clinic, I see a lot of long-term continuity patients with HIV infection. Mm -hmm. yeah. Most of them, fortunately, have been on HIV treatment for a number of years and are, are doing quite well. But, you know, I've been um, really encouraging them to, to get boosted um, and, and it, complete the initial series if they haven't. And, you know, I would say in my practice, most of my patients actually got one of the mRNA vaccines. And so I'm recommending an mRNA booster to them. Yeah. And, uh, but if a patient got the Johnson and Johnson in that situation, you know, I, I tell them that they could get a second Johnson and Johnson after two months, or um, they could get one of the mRNA vaccines. And both of them look very good. In fact, I would recommend, you know, if, if they're acceptable, if they're accepting of an mRNA vaccine, that they get either the Pfizer or the Moderna yeah. as, as the booster after a single J and J. And the other thing I saw someone asked um, in the chat, what if they had um, another vaccine, such as I think Sinovac was the example. Uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to recall. Sinopharm, I think, might be another adenovirus. Well, Sinopharm, was that it? 
Yeah. yeah. So I think that's one of the Chinese vaccines. It but um, so, you know, you can boost people after those as well. So the, the current FDA guidance, which came out in the end of October, is that the use of our currently available COVID-19 vaccines in the U.S. as a heterologous boost in eligible individuals can be given with a different available COVID-19 vaccine. So really, they've given us sort of free license to go ahead and, and boost anyone who would be eligible for a booster with any one of the three currently available vaccines. But I would say based on that study done by Beigel et al with the heterologous boost, you know, the mRNA uh, vaccines look superior. So if someone had um, been given a primary series in another country with a different vaccine, I would still offer them one of the mRNA boosters. So, you know, it was interesting. We, when that first data about the relative greater protection of Moderna over Pfizer came out, I, I, I think one concept of vaccinology that it takes some time to explain to patients is that the, the interval between vaccine doses is a minimum, not a maximum, right? And that we actually, you know, we are, with, with vaccine dosing, we are trying to maximize protection as efficiently as we, as we can, getting all the series into a patient as quickly as we can, but also understanding that spacing out the interval between doses of a primary series tends to increase immunogenicity. Um, and we see that over and over again in the vaccine development. I think early on, I, I had hypothesized that maybe Moderna had a little more oomph to it, slight difference, and probably not a massive clinical difference, but a little more oomph to it because of the longer interval between the first and second doses of Moderna, maybe waiting a little longer made the difference. But then when we look at that boosting data that you presented, um, where you still pretty consistently see a little more efficacy with Moderna as a booster, I'm, I'm more skeptical of that opinion that I'd held earlier, that maybe it's not that the interval may have nothing to do with it. It may just be a somewhat more immunogenic vaccine. And it correlates pretty interestingly with uh, with the antibody titers, which we can maybe loop back to in a minute. But so with all of that, Dr. Cavazza, you know, we talked a lot about, uh, about approaches to vaccine hesitancy, both with patients and with colleagues. And you alluded to how there are some folks who are on the fence versus folks who are more sort of overtly resistant. What kinds of strategies have you found useful for people who are more on the fence, what have you found their concerns tend to be? Examples of sorts of things to worry about and strategies you found helpful with them. Yeah, so the, the concerns uh, for those people tend to be, well, number one, fear of side effects. So really yeah. fear of that feeling lousy for a day or two um, afterwards where they may, because most of them have friends who are family members who have been vaccinated. And there's just a big fear of, of having a flu-like uh, illness a day after a shot. Uh, or a day or two in bed. And for some people, that's the initial thing keeping them away. And then, uh, you know, just the noise of, of fear of kind of the more serious complications. So then yeah, I know myocarditis uh, came up, you know, the clotting uh, comes up quite a bit. Um, you know, infertility comes up, although that, you know, I don't think anything's been shown um, from that. If anything, you know, I think there's an uh, urgency to get all uh, pregnant women or even women trying to get um, 
uh, pregnant immunized because that's ultimately long-term the best thing for uh, trying to have a baby and is healthy mom um, ultimately. But so it's really fear of the common side effects and also fear of the very rare side effects. And then some questions or concerns about the stuff that has not been shown to do anything, well, like the infertility and, um, and pregnancy loss and, uh, and all that. And I try to have everyone just, I, to, to, to step back, I, I tell them, you know, it's, I understand the confusion, you know, it's, you know, it's understandable why they're, they're scared or, or, and pushed it off because there's so much noise around this vaccine. But I asked them to just take a step back. You know, they were just kind of buried thinking about vaccine this now. Take take a step back. You know, the most common cause of, of blood clotting and, um, and terrible hematologic um, uh, pathologies of the last 20 months, it's been active COVID infection. So I tell you, if you're going to give, a, you know, a million people a COVID infection and a million people COVID vaccine, those are the two groups you need to be comparing when deciding a decision for you. Because if you're afraid of blood clotting, this virus is not for you. Yeah. Um, and, and similarly with myocarditis and really almost any, because I mean, I think COVID can and has done almost anything, almost with any fear, you can um, really just have them step back and just try to compare uh, both groups and also calling on like what we visually see um, in the hospital um, and, and then also from the, the infertility side and, and uh, pregnancy concerns, you know, I, you know, we, we kind of just talk about how those are just not true. And we share data and that our OB colleagues, you know, have not seen any, any shortage of, uh, uh, of, of uh, expectant mothers or, or deliveries. And the only stories we get from the OB side are, are, you know, losses, you know, you know, mothers, um, uh, you know, babies who are soon to be, a born who just did not make it because of a mother's illness with COVID. I mean, those are really the, the heartbreaking OB stories that, um, that, you know, it, it's hard that people forget about because there's so much noise around um, vaccines. And I just, so I just always have them just step back and look at those two groups. You know, we know, you know, why are we not scared of what happens with, with the vaccine? Because we're all going to be faced with COVID. So everyone's immune system will be producing um, uh, some kind of uh, protection or, or antibodies uh, to COVID. And the question is, do you want it the easy way uh, through vaccination, which is an extremely low risk versus uh, rolling the dice the harder way to, from a more of the natural infection. And just to try to, I try best always to compare those two groups, not just focus on the vaccine, but take a step back, you know, the vaccine group versus the infection group. And that infection group is nowhere uh, uh, you want to be. And that, you know, and just kind of really under telling them, hey, I understand your fears. There's so much noise, but then really highlighting that infected group uh, more uh, it has really been, been helpful having them kind of really understand, especially from someone who's seen uh, so much uh, in those groups. I mean, it has been very helpful given just the confidence and you know, I make also some, I mean, I joke around uh, quite a bit, but I even tell people if there's a 25% chance my leg might fall off after the vaccine, I'd still get it. Like that's how scared of uh, bad COVID infection I am. So I kind of, um, you know, I really just put, I put everything on the infection. I mean, I, you do not want to be in that infection group um, really no, uh, no matter what. And that's been very helpful for the people who are really truly hesitant on the fence because just fear of common side effects and fear of very rare side effects or non-existent uh, complications are kind of the, uh, the main thing. But 
I mean, I've told patients that if they're scared, I'll meet them at their pharmacy and, and sit next to them and hold their hands while they get it. Um, I've offered taking them out for beers if they went to get um, uh, their shot. I try to give some incentive. Nobody's taken me up on it, but it you're actually, a better doctor than I am, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not. It's one of those. I'm not expecting anyone to say yes. So if they do, I might get in trouble. But if they believe me, they they they, you know, they end up getting the shot and, and excitedly telling me about it, and I. I don't have to do those uh, extra steps, but if they believe I'm willing to do it, I think it helps push them a little bit. We'll see if I get called out on it one day. Dr. Klein, any thoughts on the topic? Um, well, you know, I'm looking at, at some of these questions here in the chat. It would be all right if I try to. By all means, please. Thank you. Answer those. Um, so someone said, do you think half the dose of Moderna has more effect due to the higher mRNA amounts compared to the Pfizer dose as far as efficacy? And, you know, that is something that I was wondering as well, that the uh, Moderna dose is a higher dose of the mRNA and, yeah. and then the Pfizer and even their booster dose, which is half the initial dose um, is still a little more than the Pfizer dose. So it, it could be that amount um, of the mRNA that's being given that could account for what appears to be a, a stronger antibody response to the Moderna over the Pfizer. Yeah. And then someone asked, should breakthrough asymptomatic COVID-19 infections in the fully vaccinated be treated with monoclonal antibodies? And so that's a really good question. You know, I would, I would say, you know, they'd have to meet the criteria for, for requiring monoclonal antibodies, which means they'd have to be in a high risk group. So um, 65 and older is high risk or people who will have underlying comorbidities that put them at increased risk for more severe disease. Um, and that's a long list of comorbidities, you know, including yeah. diabetes, hypertension, obesity. Um, and the other important distinction is you, you can't give the antibodies to people who are ill enough to be hospitalized and need treatment for COVID-19. So it, it is that sort of, you know, mildly ill to asymptomatically ill vaccinated people. I think it's a good idea, especially in the very immunocompromised patients. Yeah, I, I think that asymptomatic incidental infection in the fully vaccinated, I think you do have to have some degree of symptomatology uh, under the EUA to be, to be eligible for monoclonals. Um, but that being said, I, I have given it to very, I have given monoclonals to some very high risk groups in the absence of significant symptoms, uh, just recognizing the very high risk of progression in certain populations. And I think the clock starts ticking for 10 days from the first symptom also. So I think you kind of need to have a symptom because it doesn't really go from the first positive test, right, for the uh, monoclonal. There, there's a little bit of flexibility in, yeah. in defining that, I think. Like 10 days yeah. of symptoms. Yeah. 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 And I struggle with that question a lot. Now, granted, I think a transplant patient, which I don't seem like that's a very different um, group and they're yeah. immunocompromised. But I struggle a lot with um, uh, vaccinated people who, you know, who are, have a BMI above 30 or, or, you know, who may have some mild uh, lung disease or, or so where they're technically not high risk because they are vaccinated. Like, do I, 
I almost use their vaccination status as a lower risk, um, almost dropping their risk a little bit early on. And that's where I kind of struggled with that decision and the vaccinated because I view them as lower risk. Um, uh, but I have been, you know, but I do discuss it now with everyone who might qualify and then I help them choose, but I at least give them that option now. But I struggled a lot with that. Um, of, you know, if you're vaccinated, you technically are lower risk, um, you know, for the non-immunocompromised people, just, yeah. um, no, it, it is a different population. The, um, uh, you know, one question that we're seeing a fair bit of that I think would be good for us to loop back is, is what is the, we'll use a technical term, the correlative of immunity for COVID. So, you know, for certain infections, we have relatively clear correlates of immunity, a certain titer of anti-hepatitis B, surface antibody levels, for example. Um, we don't really have something like that for COVID yet. We look at antibodies against spike protein. We look at titers against But we don't actually know what level of antibody it correlates perfectly with protection. We do see that there is an association, that we see that as antibody levels go up, on a population level, we see fewer infections in that group. For example, following mRNA vaccination, following um, adenovirus vector vaccine like J&J or AstraZeneca vaccination, we see that the risks of infection increase. I apologize. Evidently my uh, hospital did not get the memo that I was doing a webinar today. <laughs> um, but the... Uh, but we, we can't draw a lot, draw a titer of anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibodies and say, above this threshold, you are immune, below this threshold, you are not. So what can we say about antibody levels and protection from what we know from the published literature? I mean, pretty much, I just tell them more is better than less. I mean, that's really in general terms. I think that's all we know because we don't have those set numbers or those set cutoffs, but more than today is going to be better than ha than having less. And that's really where I leave it at because they oftentimes come at you with numbers. They'll get them checked somewhere. And I don't know what they mean, but having more of that is going to be better. That seems reasonable. Dr. Klein. Yeah. I don't think we really know um, what yeah. the you know particular cutoff is. We can't really reassure people. Um, you know, if, if your antibody levels over this amount, you're protected. The, the other piece that, that we don't know is how to sell mediated immunity uh, way into this. And it could yeah. be that that plays a larger role than we realize, and that's not gonna be reflected in the antibody level either. And so um, right now, I think we generally would recommend people not check antibody titers to know if they're immune or not, because it, it's hard to interpret that. And yeah. good guidance. No, absolutely. I, I, sir, I think we've all been been asked that question both by patients and probably by friends and family members as well. And I've never been able to give people a straight answer to that. Um, how about kind of the the thing we haven't addressed is like like all things with COVID, uh, plans for educational events get thrown off by actual events, meaning that uh, in the last really week the Omicron variant, and what does what role is this going to play in our vaccine plans going forward? Um, Dr. Klein, any thoughts? Yes, I, you know, I think we just 
are sort of learning, you know, how this yeah. is going to impact the vaccination efficacy. Um, I don't think we have a lot of good data yet. You know, one of the slides I showed you was looking at the um, virus neutralizing antibody titers in patients after, you know, two doses and then after six months and after three months. And you can see how there was a difference with the different strains that there were lower levels of uh, these neutralizing antibodies against the beta variant, for instance. And so we don't know if that's where the Omicron level's gonna fall. Is it gonna be low? Um, meaning we'll have less immunity to that um, as compared to the Delta. And I think those experiments are being set up in research labs right now, and we're gonna have to wait for those results. Yeah. No more. And one uh, quick question that um, I think comes up a lot that I forgot to mention from the vaccine hesitant is many have this notion that natural infection is better than um, uh, immunity from uh, vaccination. Uh, that's been a little bit of a challenge also, especially with some of our younger uh, patients. And, you know, I think we said it might be, you know, it might be good for some people. We just don't know who, but, but I also tell these patients, I've never seen a vaccinated breakthrough infection lead to death in a 40-year-old. I've seen a 40-year-old who had COVID in the winter die of COVID in the summer. You know, and, and I, you know, just, you know, from those stories, I mean, I natural infection might be good for, for some people, but we can't identify who that's good enough for for how long. And just drawing on that, I think most of us can, can recall patients who died of uh, a new COVID infection uh, at some period of time after their first one. But I've never seen a young, uh, otherwise healthy, forty-year-old uh, die of a vaccinated, uh, uh, vaccinated mm -hmm. die of COVID following vaccination. Um, so that's that's also kind of been a challenge of how do you tell them that hey, natural immunity is not superior. Yeah. Um, so that has been a barrier that I, I forgot to talk about too much earlier, but. And I, and I think we're starting to get hard data to back that up too. Um, early on. Uh, there was a study called the CHARM study, which was done uh, by colleagues in the Navy when I was still active duty. Not, I had nothing to do with the study, but I, I wish I had because it was an amazing study. Looking at the impact of immunity in a Marine Corps recruit population, uh, this was led by uh, Dr. Andrew Lutizia, a Navy infectious disease physician with colleagues from the Naval Medical Research Center. And so, you know, kind of the definition of the young, healthy population, right, 18 to 21, um, mixed gender, um, in good, good enough physical health to join the Marine Corps, right? And looked at impact of prior COVID infections and risk of getting reinfected uh, during their time in basic military training, which is up to about three months or so. And they said they identified about a 85% reduced risk in that three month window, right? But we've had later data showing that that app, you know, Three months of protection is pretty reliable across populations. After three months, it becomes very variable. And just like you're saying, there are some people who, whose immunity lasts much longer. There are other people whose immunity wanes quite rapidly. And clearly, this is not sterile immunity. This is not varicella. This is not measles. This is something that wanes very much like influenza, uh, where you can get it over and over again. And that protection is simply not reliable. And that's even before we get into questions of variants of 
beta, of delta, of mu, of now Omicron. And knowing how that's going to play out is important. I think the way you put it is exactly right, that uh, uh, the risk of breakthrough infections from natural immunities at least double and probably greater than that after vaccination. Uh, there was one recent report, and that's probably pretty close to what most of us have seen clinically. Um, but of course, the point of vaccination is not just to reduce all-cause infections. It's also to reduce the severity of infections. And the severity of those breakthrough infections following vaccination are also much lower than the severity of breakthrough infections following natural infection. Um, certainly curious if you if you feel any any differently about that. Dr. Klein, Dr. Cabaza. Well, I'll let Dr. Cabaza comment first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll say just anecdotally, I mean, that is what we see. We see a lot of, I mean, a lot more people in the hospital uh, who have breakthrough uh, COVID from, um, who had natural infection in the past than those uh, with breakthrough infection from vaccines, I think, across uh, the board. Uh, and certainly, I mean, a lot more severe, infect, comparatively severe infection uh, in breakthrough of naturally vaccinated compared to those um, uh, with uh, naturally infected uh, compared to those who are, are fully vaccinated. Um, you know, just, so just anecdotally, I mean, that does make sense. That's what I'm uh, certainly seeing more and in, in that, that good study uh, supports that. And it's been tough because this narrative has kind of spiraled a lot in the, um, you know, the, the misinformation circles that, you know, natural infection is superior and uh, in that it's better. And once you're infected, you don't need it. And I've just seen people die who had young people who had, who held on to that um, as well, who I granted, I'm not sure how many of them would have gotten vaccinated um, anyway, but I imagine there's a subset of people who would get vaccinated even with natural infection uh, prior. I think should, we should try to reach somehow, but uh, um, it's just, it's been a challenge. And that was that other kind of barrier, you know, of, of that group that I, totally left out of just the natural infection group that, you know, are just holding on to this notion. Yeah. But anecdotally from what I see in the, in the hospitals and the, the, the ICU, I mean, it's, it's certainly natural infection seems to be not as strong, uh, the immunity from it. Yeah. In fact, there was a, a study I saw, I can't remember if it uh, was Tennessee or Kentucky, but they had good state level data and they looked at people who had had prior infection, and then they compared going forward, following their state data, and looking at um, reinfections, and then looking at their state vaccine registry data. And they saw that people who had been vaccinated after the earlier infection had lower rates of um, reinfection. Yeah, I think it was uh, Dr. Fauci who said that uh, vaccination after natural infection probably makes you about bulletproof was the term I believe he used. <laughs> well, at least for a period yeah. of time, right? Exactly. You don't know how long that lasts. <laughs> exactly. And that, that actually, I think, relates to a question, another question in the chat. Are we looking at a scenario like with the influenza vaccine, where we get every year we get our influenza vaccine and our COVID vaccine at the same time? And I'm going to hypothesize, yeah, maybe. And I don't think that's bad. I know that um, Moderna and some other manufacturers are actually looking at a combined single dose uh, or single injection uh, vaccine that would include influenza and uh, SARS-CoV-2 in it, which would be enormously convenient. 
Whether we need it, I don't know, but I, I suspect that there's a good chance of that. Right. And then this last question here is a great one uh, about, oh, yeah. you know, boosters following a breakthrough infection. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I'd be curious because I um, about how um, uh, you both uh, approach it. Uh, certainly from from my end, again, I'm back in that theme of, of get, let's get as much immunity as we can. So I tell people after, you know, your natural infection was probably a, a, a booster of sorts. And after three months, get a booster the easy way and then kind of, yeah. you know, call it at that. But I'm not sure. Uh, the data there or kind of what you, uh, how you may practice that. But. I, I think that's a very reasonable approach yeah. to, to wait three months and, and then give a booster. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Completely agree. Um, you know, CDC, I believe has said that you can get vaccinated once you've recovered from your acute COVID and, and, uh, uh, and are able to come out of isolation. Uh, so they don't put a timeline on that. Um, in their guidance, but I think that, yeah, it's okay to, it's okay to wait a couple months. Three months seems like a perfectly rational period of time based on what we know. I wouldn't wait much longer than three months though. I would say when you're feeling better within the next three months, please do so. And I think it is the top of the hour and I think we are out of time. So First of all, Dr. Klein and Dr. Plaza, thank you so much for taking the time today to share your wisdom, your expertise, and the data with everyone. And thanks for letting me join you and uh, talk to you. I know one of the, the pleasures of moderating these things is I get to talk to people who are much smarter than me, and I enjoy that a great deal. So thank you both for your time. And uh, thank you again to everyone who's listening. And thank you to the chest staff for letting us put this together. Everyone have a wonderful rest of your week. Happy holidays and stay safe. Thank you. Thank Good night, you. everyone. Bye-bye.